WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. So with Independence Day right around the corner, a lot of people are thinking about the promise of America. And with everything that's happening socially, politically, culturally, how are you feeling about the state of American democracy right now? I am ready to move out of the country. <laughs> Not even kidding. Gosh, the promise of America. Uh, I just think we, as a country, have come to recognize more and more that there's a lot to grapple with and come to terms with. I can't say that we have the best country in the world anymore. Supreme Court turned their back on women. So yeah, devastation would be a good word to describe yeah. it. It's really just how more worse it's gonna get from here on. You know, Roe versus Wade, gun violence, everything that's going on in the world. I'm ready for the bleeding to stop. Welcome to the show. I'm Kai Wright. So I've got a July 4th tradition, which I've had since high school. And over the past couple of years, we've made it a tradition on this show as well. Every Independence Day, we read a portion of Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. So in 1852, the Rochester Ladies Anti-Slavery Society invited Douglas to address an event commemorating the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He was an enormously popular speaker at this time, and this speech, which he actually gave on July 5th, it's now considered one of the greatest pieces of oratory in American history. So we begin tonight's show with an excerpt from the climactic moment of this address. Here's actor John Douglas Thompson reading Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. What to the slave is the Fourth of July? Fellow citizens, pardon me and allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I or those I represent to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that Declaration of Independence extended to us? And am I, therefore, called upon to bring our humble offering to the national altar and to confess their benefits and express devout gratitude for the blessings resulting from your independence to us? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean citizens to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, 
a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham, your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless, your denunciations of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy, a thin veil to cover up crimes that would disgrace a nation of savages. There is not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At a time like this, scorching irony, not convincing argument is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour out a stream, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm and stern rebuke, for it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And the crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. That was actor John Douglas Thompson reading Frederick Douglass's 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. And it feels particularly appropriate to start tonight's show with this Douglas tradition because we're going to spend the rest of the hour talking about the January 6th insurrection. But I'm less interested in the grisly details of that day than I am the, frankly, 150-some-odd-year backstory to that day. My friends and former WNYC colleagues Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Meritz have been reporting on the MAGA movement since it began. They launched their Trump Inc. podcast right about the time we started this show. But they've spent the past year and a half focused explicitly on the insurrection. And their new podcast is called Will Be Wild. It's a tough but emotional listen, an essential listen, for understanding how we got here. It's a holiday weekend, so I spoke with them in advance, and we covered a lot of ground. So just settle in and take a listen to our conversation. Ilya and Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the show. Kai, it's always great to, great to talk to you. I miss I miss the ability to pick your brains whenever I want about the world of Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, which connects to my first question here is, you know, you were you share in the podcast and will be wild that you were editing the last episode of Trump Inc. on the day of the insurrection, which I did not know. Can you take us back to that day and the moment you sort of found out about this? For myself, you know, we, we were already in pandemic mode. We were already on Zoom. And the dirty secret of Zoom is that even while you have all your colleagues' faces in the grid, you can click away and look at Twitter. And <laughs> I, I'd been doing some of that. I don't know whether Andrea did that. And I was like, ooh, kind of scary pictures. And like by the time the meeting wrapped up, we saw scenes just full of tear gas and angry, angry, angry people everywhere. And that, that, it, that it really sank in for me that this was like a catastrophe for the history books. Right. And what did it mean for your reporting, Andrea? What, like, because I mean, you had been so deep in this world <laughs> so, for so long. The last episode that we were working on was actually a time capsule. <laughs> and we felt like 
we don't want people to forget this presidency. We want history to remember it. So we want to gather together some documents and items that we think will help people remember. And I think what really, you know, sort of caught us off guard is not only were people not going to be forgetting, but that these events of January 6th meant that unpacking Trump, Trump's effects on democracy, Trump's effect on the history of this country was not just our past, but very much our present. Yeah. And I will add that it's not just, you know, as we've come to learn, it's not just about something that happened on January 6th. It's about something that is happening now in the country and that we need to talk about. Yeah. And is it fair to say that now your reporting for Will Be Wild, this is how I hear it, is is not actually about January 6th itself so much as it is this years-long backstory to the moment? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think um, we started out with a lot of questions about the day. And the more you looked at those questions, the more the questions seemed to stretch back further and further in time, first to things that were happening in the Trump administration, and then ultimately to stuff that that really predated Trump. Uh, Trump is sui generis, and he certainly <laughs> played a very significant role in what happened at the Capitol. But but actually, the trends that we saw there are a manifestation of stuff that's been going on for decades, maybe even centuries, depending on how you want to look at it. Well, indeed. So let, let's start our conversation where you end the podcast with that in mind. Uh, Andrea, you talked to Representative Benny Thompson, who is the chair of the House Committee investigating January 6th, uh, and the two of you reflect on history. And that reflection begins with one artifact from the trashing of the Capitol. The, the rioters ripped down and defaced a, a portrait. Who, who was in that portrait? So the portrait was the first black Congress member, a man named Joseph Rainey, who had been born enslaved and not five years after the end of the U.S. Civil War he was in Congress, which is just extraordinary and tells you about, you know, sort of what happened when you could have majority vote in this country and in the South in particular, in South Carolina in particular. And he ends up playing a really pivotal role in terms of accountability for white supremacist violence that kept going after the Civil War. And it's because of his work that there was this accountability structure set up. And and one of the things that was so surprising, and, you know, I think it's sort of always surprising when you go back at, and look at Reconstruction, because you ask yourself, how can I not know this? And then it's kind of like facepalm, like, duh, obviously, <laughs> because the history was deliberately erased. And there was this sort of layering of his portrait being ripped from the wall and sort of actually physically being erased at the same time that the history of Joseph Rainey has been erased. We'll take a break and then learn that erased history. I'm talking with Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Meritz about their new podcast, Will Be Wild. Coming up, how accountability for what happened on January 6th begins in 1871. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. Two announcements. First, in our podcast feed, you'll see that we've released the next episode of Keeping Score. Keeping Score is a new series from our colleagues at WNYC. It's about four schools, one building, and an effort to reverse segregation. Be sure to check it out and check back every Thursday for new episodes of that series. Second, the United States of Anxiety is now live streaming our episodes on YouTube. That means you can watch these episodes live, see Kai and the guests, and even ask questions 
questions during the show through the live chat. We're going to try live streaming out for a while, so if you'd like to watch the show in action, come hang out with us Sundays at 6 p.m. on WNYC's YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search for WNYC. We'd love to see you there. And as always, if you've got something on your mind you want to share with the show, record your voice and email us. The address, anxiety at WNYC.org. All right, thanks. Talk to you soon. Welcome back. I'm Kai Wright. I'm talking with Ilya Meritz and Andrea Bernstein about their new podcast, Will Be Wild, which tells the very long backstory of the January 6th insurrection. For the break, Andrea said the story really begins with the very first Black Congress member who took office representing South Carolina right after the Civil War. The insurrectionist ripped his portrait off the wall inside the Capitol on January 6th, but Andrea says that 150 years before that vandalism, Representative Joseph Rainey helped create a law that now may be used to hold the insurrectionists and their enablers accountable. And explain a little bit about the accountability structure he was so pivotal in creating. So this is the Civil Rights Act of 1871, known as the Klan Act. How and why is that relevant to this moment? So I knew not that much about it and started asking all the obvious people and then all the unobvious people, what happened? What was this? Because it had become the basis of all of these post-January 6 lawsuits. Benny Thompson actually filed the first lawsuit under the KKK Act of 1871. He filed it with the NAACP as his lawyers, and they had resurrected this Civil War Reconstruction-era statute. And what happened with this statute was that even after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and even after the first enforcement acts, there was still this incredibly horrible outbreak of violence in the South. And it was particularly bad in South Carolina, Joseph Rainey's home state. So there's this debate. There's a bill proposed, a law proposed, that uh, would give the federal government sweeping powers to address white supremacist violence. And Joseph Rainey gets up and he says, these reports of white supremacist violence are real. We have to pass this measure. And what had struck me reading through the congressional debate is how familiar it sounded, how sort of white Democrat after white Democrat, of course, Democrats were the party aligned with white supremacists at the time, how they kept getting up and and saying like, oh, these reports of violence are exaggerated, they're not real. And Joseph Rainey was like, no way. And it is a galvanizing moment. The law passes, President Grant signs it, and his Justice Department really uses it to hold the Klan to account. And then it kind of goes dormant until after January 6th, when people start suing using this act to demand accountability. And I think there are now uh, eight federal lawsuits that are specifically about January 6th accountability that rely on the KKK Act of 1871. These are all civil lawsuits. And uh, Betty Thompson filed the lawsuit before he became chair of the Select Committee. So he actually uh, removed himself from the lawsuit but it still bears his name, right. Thompson B. Trump. And the, the the just to put a fine point on it, the idea is that embedded in that law is uh, a clause that says it's you cannot disrupt the business of Congress, that it's a crime to disrupt exactly. the business of Congress. Exactly. And it was so extraordinary to me because it was so on point. It said uh, you can be held liable. If you interfere with a federal office holder through threats, intimidation, or violence, it seemed like it had been written for what happened on January 6th. And of course, it, it hadn't been. It just had been written for the eventuality that uh, violent mobs could try to exercise raw power over democratic institutions. And in order for democracy to survive, there had to be checks on that. And the KKK Act of 1871 was very much this uh, attempt 
to hold to account people who conspired in this way. And that is exactly what we're looking at here. And and I think what's really interesting is that um, there's a federal judge, Amit Mehta, who in fact has been hearing a number of the separate Justice Department conspiracy cases against the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. But he's also hearing these civil suits. And he ruled that there was sufficient evidence of a conspiracy for these cases to go forward. So that was a very significant legal moment uh, in the history of January 6th mm-hmm. accountability. Tell us just quickly a little bit about Benny Thompson himself. I mean, I think he's somebody that a lot of people mm. are just being introduced yeah. to as the chair of the, of the House committee. Um, we talked about him a little bit on the show. Uh, who, who is Benny Thompson? You know, it's so interesting to me because, you know, when we... We're working on our podcast, Trump Inc. There was a number of sort of congressional representatives that were demanding accountability in areas that we were particularly paying attention to, having to do with finances and dealings with Russia. I mean, Adam Schiff was one of them. Uh, the late Congressman Cummings was one of them when he was chair of the House Oversight Committee. These were sort of people that we had tracked. All through the Trump administration, Benny Thompson had been raising his voice about the rise of domestic terrorism and the rise of white supremacist violence in this country. And he'd been holding hearing after hearing. He'd been looking at the Department of Homeland Security and how Trump had been almost systematically dismantling that department's ability to fight domestic terrorism, to fight white supremacist violence. And on January 6th, a lot of the things that he'd been warning about came to be. So I started thinking, okay, I really need to look into Benny Thompson. And he is from Bolton, Mississippi, a town of, I think it's about 500 people. And he is, he contains in himself the sort of arc of history of black voting rights. So he is goes to college in Mississippi in the 1960s, and he starts getting involved in politics almost right after college and eventually runs and wins and is elected mayor of Bolton, Mississippi. And there's this wonderful oral history of him where he's asked, you know, how did you get to do this? And what are your aspirations? And he says, well, you know, I'd like to run for state legislature, but I don't think I'll ever be in Congress. And of course, the result of the Voting Rights Act is that people do get back into Congress. So you have this moment where the high watermark for the number of blacks in Congress had been when Joseph Rainey was in during Reconstruction. And after the Voting Rights Act, it begins to grow and grow and grow. And Benny Thompson is part of that, part of that sort of 50-year arc of black lawmakers getting into Congress. And then he is this victim on January 6th of an attempt, you know, by some people. Now, the motivations were, you know, very different. But obviously, there were Confederate flags in the Capitol. There was racist language used. I mean, there were white supremacists were definitely a thread of that mob on January 6th. I I just want to say about Benny Thompson, I didn't, uh, his name didn't mean anything in particular to me until, like, he got attached to that lawsuit then you start to look at him, you start to look at his career, and you see somebody who uh, doesn't go on a lot of TV necessarily, but quietly has been working these issues, seeking accountability for a really, really long time. And so when we started looking at the hearings that he'd been conducting during the Trump administration, pointing at the number of you know, vacancies at the Department of Homeland Security, of senior staff, people charged with, like, actually protecting the country against domestic terrorism. He was doing the work of government that whole mm-hmm. time. It's not the stuff mm-hmm. that gets covered a ton in the news, uh, but that that was his bread and butter. I love that phrasing, the word, he was doing the work of government, um, which is feels so antiquated at this moment. Uh, but Ilya, speaking of the motivations of the people who were at the insurrection, you spent an enormous amount of time with in, act, with actual insurrectionists and their family members um, telling these wrenching emotional backstories. Um, and the the podcast opens with a conversation with a teenager, Jackson Reffitt, who sent a tip to the FBI before the insurrection, warning that his father, Guy Reffitt, was a dangerous man who was planning, quote, something big. C- can you introduce us this to this family and, and, and starting with Jackson and Guy and their relationship? Yeah, well, so uh, 
Jackson was 18 at the time that he made the tip. He turned 18 just a few months before. And uh, he has long brown hair, skinny kid, likes to play video games, loves anime, very intelligent. And um, I got to know him in Texas after his dad had been arrested and locked up. And Jackson had played a role in that happening. Uh, As you say, Jackson made a tip to the FBI. Uh, It was on Christmas Eve 2020 and didn't really hear anything from them for a while, but felt a sense of relief because for months uh, he had been watching his father closely and seeing his dad you know, in his own view, espousing more and more crazy conspiracy theories, seeming to go off the deep end. And not just that, but taking concrete steps, doing actual things that worried him, like stockpiling gas and ammo, buying a generator, and also um, occasionally being kind of violent and out of control. At, at one point, uh, it, Jackson's mom reported to him that that guy, Jackson's dad, had held a gun to her head, right? So this is a this is a kid who, when his dad would do these things, he would write it down in a notebook and look at it. And he became convinced, listening to his dad's words, that his dad meant what he said, and he was planning something big, and he was dangerous. So Jackson made that tip. Christmas Eve, put the whole thing out of his mind, was like, this is this is on somebody else now. And he didn't hear back from the FBI until the afternoon of January 6th. And uh, they called him. At that point, Guy Reffitt was at the Capitol, Jackson knew that his dad was at the Capitol. That afternoon, his phone rings. The agent says, are you in a safe place to talk? Jackson says, hang on a second, puts on his shoes, goes down to his car, shuts the door, and is like, hi, uh, sure, I can talk. Well, uh, funny you should call it. <laughs> funny you should funny you should call on this particular afternoon. But he says, what he told me is that he told the agent, your timing is impeccable, and that the agent didn't laugh. But what that started was a relationship with that agent and the FBI. And they met up a few days later after Guy Reffitt came home from D.C. And Jackson gave the FBI recordings of his dad. He described to the FBI a threat that his dad had made, uh, that traitors get shot, a threat that he made against Jackson and his younger sister Peyton if they were to rat on him. Because, of course, this was the point when FBI was rounding up everybody that it possibly could who had been at the Capitol. Um, And so this is a family that went from kind of like simmering discontent and tension between dad and son to just breaking apart completely in a matter of days. And extraordinarily, many members of that family, of that nuclear family, talked to me. Not only Jackson, uh, but also his mom, Nicole, his older sister, Sarah, and eventually Guy Reffitt, who was the one who went to the Capitol. He and I have been corresponding while he's been in jail. The whole story of this family is is harrowing and very difficult to listen to on in a whole bunch of ways. And one of the things that strikes me, Ilya, is just like how um, the normalization of violence inside the family um, before any of this happens. I mean, it was just chilling to hear how truly prone to violence guys seem to be and how his wife and daughter convinced themselves to accept that violence. I just, I, that, that's what I struggled the most with listening to it. Yeah, well, um, I did too. <laughs> I interviewed Nicole and Sarah, the wife and daughter, first on my first day in Texas. And I interviewed Jackson on the second day. So first I heard, you know, basically arguments for Guy Reffitt saying he's not that bad. He would never actually hurt anyone. You know, essentially, this is all an overreaction, almost an exaggeration, but we can vouch for him personally. And when I left that conversation, they really almost had me there. I was like, maybe this is overreach with Guy Reffitt. And then the next day, I meet Jackson. And Jackson seemingly has a much more clear-eyed view of his dad and writes down every little thing that points to an unstable person. And, you know, this is an area of reporting that I had never done before. I've never reported on people's lives in this intimate of a way before. What I really wanted to show is that when it happens inside a family, um, you sort of tend to lose all perspective. And if you are determined to gain perspective, an outsider perspective, as Jackson puts it, you're going to exile yourself from your family. And that is what happened. Jackson effectively 
his relationship with his mom and sisters went kind of almost dormant because they couldn't agree on the underlying reality. You know, Kai, something that you said, you said the normalization of violence within this family. And it's so interesting that you said that because the official communique of the Republican National Committee was that what happened on January 6th was legitimate political discourse. Uh, One member of Congress likened it to a normal tourist visit. There are polls that show that a very significant portion of Americans, one in three or one one in four, depending on how you count, believe that violence is a, a way to make change. And that is twice the number that it was 10 years ago. So that thing, the normalization of violence in the family, is something that obviously the Refit family experience, but that we are experiencing as a nation and are still grappling with how to confront. So in the in the podcast, Ilya, you say that you surprised yourself in how much empathy and understanding you found in this family story and the Refit story, and 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 like as you guys sort of tried to think about what's the optimism here, uh, that that a note of optimism you got was like that this family continues to try to be in be in relationship to one another, and I have to say. I had exactly the opposite reaction to the story you told. Like, I found it terrifying. Um, because what I hear in that is that their ability, Jack, with Jackson as the notable exception, their ability to, to find an excuse and to find a way not to say, it's that, that it's more comfortable to find a way to say, it's okay, dad's just a little weird and we can figure this out, than to say, dad is dangerous to, to the rest of us. Um, yeah, I think that's a very fair point of view, and I don't think there's one way to view this family. What I really kind of hope comes across is that the the women in the family who, by and large, defend Guy Reffitt, although it's complicated, are not suckers, and they're not dumb. They're smart, funny interesting, astute people. They have reasons that they believe what they believe. They have reasons that they act as they act. And um, I'm not very optimistic for our country, but I do think the (laughs) thing that is on our side, if we can leverage it, it, sort of both within the microcosm of the Refit family, but also in the bigger country, is that we are talking about our neighbors and the parents of your kids' friends in school and just the people kind of all around us. And where we're talking about our neighbors, there is always an opportunity to reconnect. Um, I'm not like a big sports fan, but like, you know, we do it when we watch a baseball game. We do it when we watch football. It's like a ritualized fight and then we kind of drop it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that that, if I were to take an optimistic view, that's what it would be rooted in. I'm I'm not very, I'm essentially not very optimistic. I think this is like a terrible situation. I, I don't really see how you, you know, wind that yarn back up and make it look tidy it's i I don't think that's going to happen i'm talking with Ilya meritz and andrea bernstein about their podcast will be wild which tells the very long backstory of the january 6th insurrection coming up we were warned by a lot of people that right-wing extremist violence was a growing danger so why didn't we listen and what's money got to do with all of this. Stay with us. What if millions of Black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only Black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of Black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The 
The most frustrating thing about January 6th, really about all the extremist violence we've seen lately, is just how predictable it's all been. For that matter, it was literally predicted well before Donald Trump even ran for president. One of the stories that Andrea Bernstein and Ilya Meritz tell in their new podcast, Will Be Wild, is that of Homeland Security expert who first became concerned during the Bush years. Yeah, so um, Gerald Johnson was, he describes himself as the Lone Ranger at the Department of Homeland Security uh, in the early 2000s when DHS was really focused on that external Islamic terrorism threat, and he was the domestic terrorism guy. And around the time that Barack Obama announced his run for president, Johnson was asked to look into the sort of threats around right-wing extremism that might be connected with his candidacy, especially as he became the Democratic nominee and eventually won the presidency. Uh, So he does a year of research and, you know, hangs out on message boards, which is where a lot of that activity was happening. And what he finds is, yeah, people are riled up. (laughs) The the prospect of the first Black president and then the election of the first Black president uh, is a hugely activating event for uh, a lot of people. Uh, it's He mostly writes his report in terms of potential rather than actual acts that had been committed at that point. But the way that he's been trained to sort of read these chat rooms uh, is significant. And so what he wants to do is point law enforcement to a gathering threat that they should be prepared for. Puts out a report in the spring of 2009, uh, doesn't think much of it. It's really sort of an internal government report, not for wide consumption. It's only about 10 pages long. And the following weekend, he's out with the Boy Scout troop where he volunteers, I believe it was Mulchfest that weekend. He has the radio turned on to the local rock station and he hears a news bulletin about this report about right-wing extremism. And uh, he's like, wait, is that is this <laughs> is that the report that I just wrote? And in basically in an instant, um, this fairly dry government report becomes like high-grade Tinder for a conflagration and Republicans in Congress and lots of conservative activists, you know, basically become concerned that this report is a pretext to spy on them, to spy on anti-abortion activists or spy on people who oppose increasing immigration or, or want to tighten up immigration and stuff like that. That's not really the threat that he's pointing at. The threat that Daryl Johnson is pointing to is just that law enforcement should be prepared for increased right-wing extremist activity and that Given the recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's a huge population of veterans, some of whom will be very disillusioned with how things are going in this country and may be a prime target for recruitment. And that in particular, I think he refers to disgruntled veterans. And that phrase in particular really gets this report in trouble. Uh, In the end, the secretary of DHS has to go on TV and apologize for it. Daryl Johnson's unit is disbanded. He's exiled to sort of Siberia within DHS. He leaves shortly thereafter. And really this opportunity, I think the reason that I told this story is that we had an opportunity at that moment to take the threat seriously. Daryl Johnson was planning to go on the road, talk to police departments around the country. All that got yanked. And so, uh, you know, a big opportunity to get ahead of a problem, we instead exploded that and fell behind on a problem that was only gathering strength. You know, one of the things about the Daryl Johnson episode at DHS is it was like... That pattern kept repeating itself, and each time, the consequences got worse. There were so many people—I mean, we interviewed maybe a dozen former top-level DHS officials for this story, and there were so many occasions where people said, we need to confront white supremacy, we need to confront domestic terrorism. I mean, it was accelerated under Trump because Trump himself was riling people up, as we know. And one of the things that is so disturbing is that there's this disinformation around this, that the the sort of we need to, you know, it goes back again to what we were talking about in Congress in 1870, where the Democrats were saying, no, white supremacy is not a big deal. When this kind of disinformation is presented, that this is not a serious threat, tools are also given to people to deny the rebuttal. And that is what's so, so, so dangerous about this moment. And we see it happening all around the hearings. 
I, I want to come back to this disinformation thing in a minute, but Andrea, I want to ask you also about just like the number, the so many points of failed prevention uh, come up uh, it, that it is sobering. And so one of those DHS f- officials you talked to, uh, she told you the story of her warning about what was going to happen post-COVID that it was also quite chilling to me. Can you explain the warning that she was giving, this analyst was giving, and why it was ignored? Yeah, so this is Elizabeth Newman, who held the title of Assistant Secretary for Counterterrorism and Threat Prevention under President Donald J. Trump. And she had sort of worked in the area of counterterrorism basically since right after 9-11. She had been a college student in Austin, volunteered for the Bush campaign, ends up in Washington, ends up working in this area, and goes to work under Trump, believing... You know what? It's sort of the same story that people keep spinning around Trump. Like, he doesn't really mean it, which, you know, was something that people kept saying in the run-up to January 6th when he was saying, I didn't lose the election. People were like, oh, he doesn't really mean it. And, uh, yeah, he meant it, as we now know. And it had devastating consequences, as we now know. But so many people went to work for Trump, especially in those early days, with a sense of like, okay, he can't really mean it because it's unimaginable that he could. So therefore, you know, I believe in government. I believe in service. I can fix it. And she was very, very much one of those people. And she goes in and she's studying the threat and she's really watching with alarm as these things start happening. Charlottesville and uh, the massacre in El Paso at a Walmart and the massacre at the Tree of Life synagogue. I mean, you know, they're coming so thick and fast that it's hard to remember these past incidents. But it was her job and she kept trying to say we need to do something about this. COVID comes along. And she, because she studied radicalization, she studied it under bin Laden, she studied it under ISIS, she saw the patterns. When you have social stressors, when you have people who are isolated, their propensity to do violent acts increases enormously. And she was about to leave the Trump administration, but her very last act was to go to her team and say, what does the data tell us about what this kind of COVID lockdown can do? And they come back and they tell her there will be violence on the other side of reopening. So she tries to get the White House to issue a memo to law enforcement saying, watch out for this. This is coming our way. This is an inevitable product of the kind of isolation that we are now putting people through. Mm. And the White House never issues this report. It never goes out. It's one in a series of warnings that were buried, deep-sixed, or watered down by the Trump administration. Right. But as we saw with Guy Reffitt and also with Jessica Watkins, another insurrectionist whose arc of their life we followed, the COVID lockdown was a big deal for them. And it's hard to prove causality but it seemed to send them on this path by putting them online more, by putting them in these communities more, by giving them a stronger need to find some kind of belonging or sense of purpose when life, when work wasn't really happening and life wasn't very satisfying. Yeah. We're, we're running out of time, but I, I want to get to the money because I feel like this is a piece of the reporting that both of you have been doing for years that not enough other, other people are talking about. Um, the disinformation that helped fuel the flames of January 6th, you, you use this phrase, the news not on TV. Um, so let's just start with, like, what is that, just as a baseline? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, we did a whole episode on mis- and disinformation, and one of the sort of incredibly interesting moments of history is that inside the Trump administration, there were people who understood that to preserve democracy, they had to fight dis and misinformation. What is disinformation? I think the sort of clearest example would be sort of what Russia does, what Vladimir Putin does, which is just put out stuff that is meant to uh, confuse people and make people do nefarious things. Misinformation is when that gets out into the ether and then you have people like some of the sort of, you know, insurrectionists that we spoke to in the podcast who start repeating it and repeating it and repeating it, not knowing that it is ill-intended. And one of the things that people who study disinformation kept telling me is 
one of the main purposes is to make money for somebody and that there's a financial incentive to tell a lie. And it could be about a COVID vaccine. It could be about masking. And one of the biggest ways to make money right now is to tell election lies. And we are learning from the select committee that that's what was going on, that committees affiliated with Trump and entities affiliated with Trump were raising millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, in many cases from small donors, because they were saying to them, you have to rise to this occasion. You have to stop the steal. Give us your $25. Give us your $10. Give us your $50. And people did it. People without a lot of means gave that money. You know, we know now that, for example, Donald Jr.'s girlfriend, Kimberly Guilfoyle, was paid $60,000 for her two-and-a-half-minute introduction of Don Jr. on January 6th. So... There's this way at the rally, she, the, at the January 6th rally that at, turned into exactly. an insurrection. She made $60,000 to talk for two minutes in the lead up to it. Exactly. That is what happened. So we see this sort of money level is this parallel track. I mean, in one of our episodes, we really track how a piece of disinformation, very specific disinformation, led one of the most serious alleged violent offenders to tase police officer Mike Fanone. And we trace how, you know, he was like, I heard this from President Trump, so I went to Washington and I did this thing. That same thing motivated all kinds of people across the country to give in small amounts. And what did Donald Trump and the people around them do? They took this money and used it to enhance their personal wealth and also to enhance their personal power. That is one of the as yet untold stories of what happened on January 6th. And I'm very much interested to see what else the committee has unearthed. It is perhaps the most terrifying part of it all to me, I will say, and among many terrors, uh, because, I mean, as we were talking about earlier, sort of the, the in the same way that the um, lie uh, has built into it its own self-propagating l- logic, um, this whole, it's like an ideological pyramid scheme, right? In which the the grift is the idea that they don't want you in the pyramid scheme. And so every effort to stop it makes it grow. And if you don't stop it, we lose our democracy. And I just like, am I, am I doing too much? No. <laughs> you know, I mean, talk me off that ledge. I mean, not only that, but there's all this kind of mirror language that happens, right? So we always talk about how, polarized our country is and the two sides don't talk to each other, but they are listening to each other. And very disturbingly to me, people on the side of the insurrection, loosely speaking, also see our democracy as threatened. They talk about the same concepts of free speech and democracy and all the rest of it. The same things that, you know, I hope our country manages to protect. And so the meanings of the terms, how you would get to a society that preserves free speech, that preserves uh, the right to vote for all people and an equal voice for all people, becomes incredibly muddled. And the fear then is that people just get disgusted and drop out. But, you know, one of the things about what happened with Trump raising all of this money between the election and January 6th, based on the election lie, was he had this huge war chest. So... After January 6th, there was this moment, I wouldn't say it was national horror, but there was this moment where, you know, businesses and sort of, you know, professional associations, like, kind of came out and said, this is not okay. We are we cannot run the country in this way. We know from, you know, some really, really good reporting that um, top Republicans in Congress are like, we're done with Trump, we're finished with him, we finally can move on from him. But what did Trump have that they didn't have? Money hundreds of millions of dollars of money, and his willingness to just continue to spread lies. Those two things were made it almost impossible for some members of the Republican Party to distance themselves because it was an existential threat for them that they would lose their jobs. So they could have given up their jobs. Uh, and to be clear, I'm not saying that was a moral choice on their part, <laughs> right. but the point is, like, is well, that— they should have given up their jobs. Right. I mean, clearly. But— but 
But it is also true that because he had so much money, Trump had this incredibly powerful weapon at his disposal to get them to toe the line. So that was not a correct thing to do, but it it is what happened. Trump had raised so much money off the big lie that he could then turn around and use it after he had done something truly reprehensible on January 6th to say, you cannot walk away from me. And that is how Trump exercises power over people and has forever. It's just that the stakes now have gotten so high and we are all suffering the consequences. Yeah, I remember that from Trump, Inc., that this was a core part of how he's always run things, that once you get in, you can't get out. (laughs) You can't get out. You can. And I think that that's sort of what this fundraising grift really shows. What, you know, what was really a change, though, for me with Trump, Inc., like Trump, Inc., the whole time we were like, well, you know, does he have this connection to this overseas businessman? And how could that like affect policy or who's spending money at the Trump hotel? And how could that influence, uh, you know, something else that the government is doing? And it was, it was really about like the private enrichment of the president sort of through government. And that was the correct lens to look at. But I don't think Andrea or I kind of fully comprehended the way that that had morphed into something really, really different where, the way to make money was through the lie, the rapid dissemination of the lie and letting it accumulate like a snowball, accumulate more and more logic until it becomes just too big for anybody to avoid. And that's where we are now. And I don't know how we're going to deal with it. Well, that is a sobering but, uh, but useful and real moment to end on. Thank you both for the remarkable work you have been doing throughout this whole saga um, and that I know that you will continue to do. And thanks for coming on to talk to us about it. Kai, it's really, really great to talk to you about this subject in this way. Kai, it was great to talk to you. Ilya Meritz and Andrew Bernstein are the hosts and reporters of Will Be Wild. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The United States of Anxiety is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcast as well or at wnyc.org slash anxiety. If you got thoughts or questions about anything you heard tonight, hit us up at anxiety at wnyc.org. That's anxiety at wnyc.org. Bonus points for sending a voice memo. Our team includes Emily Botin, Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Kusha Navadar, Rahima, Nasa, and Katie Steele. Mixing and sound design by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. And I am Kai Wright. You can follow me on Instagram at Kai underscore Wright or catch me here on Sunday nights. Thanks for spending this time with us and happy July 4th. WNYC Studios is supported by the Center for Black Literature, presenting the 17th National Black Writers Conference, All That We Carry, Where Do We Go From Here? 50-plus writers, including Percival Everett of American Fiction, Michael Eric Dyson, Kevin Powell, Edwidge Danticott, Karen Hunter, Mark Lamont Hill, Bettina Love, and Patricia Spears-Jones, and more, will address book banning, social justice activism, environmental racism, expanding the historical narrative, and the need for emotional healing. March 20th through 23rd at Medgar Evers College in Brooklyn, New York. Registration information and more is at centerforblackliterature.org.